Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening and may God bless you abundantly. We're in the book of Ephesians. We're going to jump in. Uh, We've been going. We started last week the beginning of the armor of God. And if you've been with us, we've been going through this whole series of Ephesians. We are on the end. We're finally getting to the end of this. We've been in it for, I don't know how many months now. Does anybody know? Six to seven months, somewhere in there. Um, There's six chapters. So do the math. It's about a chapter a month, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time actually on chapter six, so we're not making it through in a month, but we've been in the last four or five verses, it's taken us two weeks to get through. So let's read Ephesians, and this is what we kind of recapping going into what we're talking about this week. Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So that's what we talked about last week, and then now we're going to jump into this week. Above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, or the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Now, remember what we talked about, this idea, Paul introduced this idea of the evil day. Now, the evil day, don't get in your mind that this is the end times, this is the last day, this is, you know, that when the Antichrist comes, I believe we're in the last days, but that's beside the point. Uh, Don't get in this, like, this is what Paul's talking about when he says the evil day. What Paul is saying is that there is going to be a day, could be today, could be tomorrow, could be every day of your life, when Satan is going to come out, come after you. And he's going to tempt you, and he's going to try to take you down, and he's going to go after you. But the Bible, what Paul is saying is, so now what we need to do is that we need to be prepared ahead of time. We need to place the whole armor of God on us every morning. Wake up placing Christ on. Make sense? Every morning, you're leaning into Christ. You're resting in Christ every morning. Because if you're waiting till Satan starts to tempt you, then say, oh, I better start putting armor on. Guess what happens? He's going to take you down. I mean, could you imagine, like, somebody starts shooting you, and like, oh, maybe now's the good time to put a bulletproof vest on after they shot you. I mean, yeah, you could do it. It just doesn't make much sense. Okay, so we talked about last week, we talked about the whole armor of faith, the whole armor. Last week, we talked about the belt of truth right? That we need to be truthing it, not living in hypocrisy, walking in single-mindedness, right? Not duplicity. And then we got into the chest plate or the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what are the two versions, what are the two types of righteousness that we talked about? 
Imputed and imparted. Okay, so there's imputed righteousness, and imputed righteousness is the righteousness that you receive in faith. Christ places that on you. You are righteous, not because you did something, not because you didn't do something. It's because Christ did it all for you. That's imputed. Imparted righteousness is the righteousness that we are now sancti- being sanctified. So that's where we kind of differ in that I may be more righteous than you, you may be more righteous than me, in that we are being more sanctified. Some of us look more like Christ than others. Some of us are babies in the faith. Some of us are mature in the faith, and that's that imparted. So we need to have the breastplate of righteousness and then the shoes of peace. Now, this is where it's awesome, is that not only do we have peace with God because of what Christ did for us, but he also says that we can actually walk with the peace of God. You could actually have the peace that God has. In the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of the coronavirus, in the midst of everything, in the midst of all the fear, in the midst of the government, in the midst of every all of that, you could actually walk in peace. And in fact, Paul says we need to be operating with the feet and walking in peace. So this morning, we're going to be moving on to the last three parts of the armor. So last week we did three. This week we're going to do three. He begins, he says, above all, literally in the Greek, it means in addition to, we're going to take on the shield of faith. Now, In ancient Rome, there were two types of shields. The first shield was this little two-foot diameter shield that he's able to uh, fight hand-to-hand combat, close-quarter combat, block shield, whatever. But then they also have this two-foot by four-foot big old shield on, with, on, the, on the face of it. It has this leather kind of facing. Uh, and they would ha- what they would do is that they would interlock with other, with other uh, uh, Roman guards, Roman um, warriors. They would interlock their shields and they would walk together. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie 300, right, where they all put their shields together kind of thing but that's or any riot police if you see riot polices and they're moving together with the shields they're pushing back that's the concept so the question is is why would they put leather on the front of their shield well the reason why they put leather on is because what they would do what the enemies often did was they'd take an arrow and they'd stick it in pitch and then they start shooting flaming arrows so not only now now you're not only worried about regular arrows i mean that's that's terrifying enough now they're flaming arrows coming at you. And so they would take this leather and they would dip it in some material. And so as soon as the arrow hit the leather, it would extinguish it. Pretty cool, huh? So they would have this, this, this leather. They would have this material on it. They would stop the flaming arrows. Now Paul is saying, look, I need you to put on, or the, God's calling you to put on, to take up the shield. To take up the shield. Now what is the shield? The shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith. So now as believers, we're supposed to take on the shield of faith. Now the question is, is what kind of faith are we supposed to take up? Now, there are two types of faith that I see that we see in the scripture. Just like last week, we kind of looked at what is Paul talking about? What does he mean take up the shield of faith? Is he talking about saving faith? Because saving faith, I don't believe Paul's doing that because he's talking to believers. And he's telling believers to take up the shield of faith. Now, if he's talking to unbelievers, it would make sense that we'd have this objective saving faith. The objective faith in salvation is what? Faith in who? Jesus. By no man, no other man by which you are can be saved. It's objective. It's true. I'm saved the same way you are saved, the same way she is saved, the same way he is saved. We're all saved the same way. There's no different kinds of faith. We all have the same saving faith, and that's only in one person, one work, and that is the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how I'm saved, by his grace. 
So I don't think Paul's saying pick up the shield of salvation, saving faith, but there's another kind of faith, and it's what theologians, I'm not a theologian, but I could read theologians, um, theologians call subjective faith. Now, this is the faith that differs. Now, this is where, you know, we have the day-to-day grind, your faith, the personal, practical, everyday faith, where my faith may be stronger than your faith, or your faith may be stronger than my faith. We all have different, but the Bible says that we are to live not by sight, not by, listen, feelings, not by emotions, but by what? Faith. We are to live by Faith, and I believe this is what Paul is talking about. Take on the Bible. Take on the shield of faith. There's a verse in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2, 4. It says this, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But listen, this is the part to memorize. But the just shall live by faith. Okay, If you're going to memorize one verse today, pick one verse, pick this one. But the just shall live by faith. Say it out. But the just shall live. But memorize that. That New Testament uses that three times in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, Paul uses this verse. Now, what's Romans? What's the book of Romans all about? It's about how do we become just in faith? How do we become just in Christ? Right? It's all about the gospel becoming just. Then he uses it in the book of Galatians. What's the book of Galatians all about? It's a how do we become righteous? Is walking in righteousness. In the book of Hebrews, he uses this verse. He quotes this verse. And what's the book of Hebrews all about? Faith. Walking in faith. So we are to take up the subjective shield of faith. We're to take up faith. Why? Because why are we supposed to take, why is the shield so important? What's Satan doing? He's shooting flaming arrows at you. Okay. Now, what are the arrows of Satan? Now, we, we don't, Paul doesn't say. We don't know what Paul has in mind. Now, I could speculate you know, based off of other scriptures. But what Paul, oftentimes, if Paul doesn't say it or the Bible doesn't say it, I'm not going to try to speculate. But in this case, we can, because the Bible elsewhere, we can see this throughout scripture of how Satan is going to do. What are the arrows? What are the darts that Satan is going to cast? Why do we need to have faith? Because Satan, the biggest dart, the arrow that Satan is going to throw at you is the arrow of doubt. Satan is going to shoot arrows at you. And this is a big one. Satan is going to get you to doubt, does God really love you? He's going to get you to doubt. Does, you know, does, does heaven real? Is there really a hell? Did God really, did God really forgive me on the basis of Jesus? Can that really be possible? You know, and then all these, you know, even this week I was talking to somebody. And they called me, actually it was yesterday, and after, and, and I haven't talked to this person in a while, and, and they called me and they said, I don't struggle with doubt. And, and he didn't know what I was preaching on, but he, he was like, I don't struggle with doubt that God exists. He said, I don't know what kind of God that we serve, though, because I'm looking at all of this the evil and wickedness that I see face to face. This guy um, deals with, he's on the border right now, and he deals with a lot of wickedness. He said, I don't know what kind of God does not have the justice and righteous, that he's not, he's not serving justice right now, that we are incapable in to do, to, to, to do. I, I'm looking at all this wickedness, all this evil. What kind? I doubt that we serve a good God. 
and these doubts. And I, I was like, that's funny you say that because that's what I'm preaching on. And Satan is going after you because there's darts of doubt. Is, is this really true? Is the word of God really true? Is Christianity the real true way? Are there more paths to heaven? And these darts of doubt, Satan is throwing doubts at you, darts of flaming arrows at you. So how do we stop the arrows of doubt? The Bible says, take up the shield of faith. And the first thing that we're going to be able, the only way we're going to be able to stop the darts of doubt that, that planted in your mind, don't cater to them. Don't stand to, don't try to defend against them. No, the only way is that we need to put our faith in. First of all, we need to put our faith in the personality, the person of God, the attributes of God. If there's one thing that you guys can do is memorize the attributes of God. Memorize who God is. If you could just memorize the attributes of God, because then when the darts of doubt come in place, when, when the darts of doubt come into place, we start to think, well, I, is God really all loving? Can God really love me? And then you think about the attributes of God. I mean, is God, we think about God being all wise. God is all wise. That's an attribute of God, right? God is all wise. Now, here's, here's the thing. Whenever you're tempted and Satan's throwing darts at you and is saying, did God really say, I don't think God would be okay. I think God would be okay with me living with my girlfriend. This week I was talking to somebody at the gym and this came out and, and it was like, and this, this woman was like, I think that God will be okay with me. Uh, he said, I would never marry anybody unless I live with them first. That's what she said. And I said, she's like, because people are crazy and I just, you never know what you're going to get. It's like, okay, Forrest. Um, but <laughs> I said, here's the problem, though. That's, that's, that sounds great. But the Bible says in one way, but also statistically, people who wait to get, to, get in, to get married and then live with each other, actually their marriage lasts longer, is healthier statistically. And she's like, really? She's like, why would, I wonder why that is. And I said, well, because God said it. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. What happens is that in my logic, in my reason, in my wisdom, Satan's throwing these arrows to meet and to, to, to cater to my wisdom. It makes sense. Her logic made sense. It makes sense that people are nuts. I want to be able to drink the milk before I buy the cow. That makes sense. If I'm buying a chicken, I want to know if it's going to lay eggs or not. Like I, that logic makes sense to my wisdom. It does. That's why we have these little things. That's why we do what we do. But here's the thing. This is going to blow some of y'all mind. This is going to blow some of mind. God is actually smarter than you. I know. It's crazy. And when Satan stoned these darts of, did God, would God, can God really, does he care? When he's showing these darts of doubt or these questioning, did God really say, you've got to rebuke it by faith in the attributes of God that the Bible says his ways are higher than my ways. He's wiser than me. Look, one of my favorite quotes was, man, it's like, it was a guy by, by the name of McGee. He said, he said, this is God. He, I said, this is God's universe. And he said, he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> and, <laughs> I love that quote. But then some of us may say he's throwing darts of doubt. Like, I don't know. Like, could, could God really love me? And, and I'm going to stand into, with honesty and all purity and complete faith. I can tell you, everybody in this room, God loves you. 
And I can say that in faith. Now, whether or not you love God, that's a whole different question. But to question God's love, because I know the attributes of God. I know that God is love. I know that God so loved the world that he actually took his son and he died on the cross for you. Any God that would not love you and then have his son die for you, that's a confusing God. I know by the attribute, but you don't know me, David. You don't know me personally. No, I don't. I don't know you. But I don't have to know you because I know God. But you don't know all the wicked. See, what you're getting from, what you're pulling from is our human relationship. That the, more, the more that we know each other, the less we are likely to love each other. Because that's what terrifies us. I don't want you to get to know me because if you get to know me and know the real me and see all the, the nonsense and the brokenness in me, you won't love me. Right? That's why I don't love some of y'all like I used to. But that's our fear. But that's not how God works. And we know that. And we can operate in faith because we know the attributes of God. God, Satan's going to throw the darts, but I'm picking up the shield of faith. I'm meditating on who God is. He's also going to shoot the dart of doubt and fear. Of fear. Y'all, this is a big one right now. I'll tell you, fear I'm terrified. Is am I going to get sick of this virus? Am I going to die? Am, am I going to am I going to lose a loved one? Am I going to lose my job? Should I take this thing? Should I do this or should I not? I don't know where the, the is this walking in fear. Everybody, I'll tell you, you all need to be praying for me. We right house right now is under attack spiritually. You know, even last night I'm sitting there with my wife, and all of a sudden she's pregnant, nine months pregnant, about to pop, and all these people, all of this stuff, all this nonsense, all these people spitting fear. Pregnant women are getting sick with COVID and dying. Pregnant women are killing their babies. All this fear. She's starting to get that fear in her mind. And then now our baby has, our youngest uh, Judah, has hand, foot, and mouth. And she's reading all these statistics about babies who get hand, foot, in the mouth. Newborn babies will die. And we're, she's terrified of our baby dying now. And there's this fear that's crippling our house. Last night, I sat with my wife. I sat with my sick kid. And as shepherd over my house, I stood there and I prayed. I rebuked the enemy because the darts of fear are not a welcome in my house. We're not going to walk in fear. But the way that we have to do that, the only way that we're able to defeat this, it's not going to be about, oh, I'm going to stand up to fear. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to be, I'm like Braveheart. I can't channel my Rocky. Okay? The only way to stand up against fear is to put our faith in something stronger, and that is the power of God. If your faith is in the power of God, then fear has no grip on you. If your faith is in the perfect love of God, then perfect love casts out all fear. And so you have to put your faith in something. You gotta take on the faith of the shield of faith in the power of God. You see, here's where fear comes in. Fear comes in when you realize your mortality. Fear comes in when you realize that you're unable to handle the situation that you're facing. The reason why we have so much fear right now, number one, because the media is pushing fear. But secondly, is because we have this virus that nobody can see. And physically, we have no authority or power over it in our flesh. I can't take up a baseball bat and fight off the coronavirus. I can't beat it. I have no weapon in my flesh to beat it. And now my mortality is at risk. And I could die and this can take me out. I'm seeing my weakness. And when you're living in your own strength 
and in the flesh and in the world, every time that you are acknowledge, you have to acknowledge your weakness, every time you have to acknowledge your inabilities, every time you have to sit and face your mortality, you will always, always, always walk in fear and anxiety. I have sat down with people who have anxiety and struggle with anxiety, and it always comes back to the same thing. I am terrified of death. And I have no authority or power over my mortality. How do we fight this? How do we walk in perfect love? Well, how do we become like the saints of Hebrews when it says in the Hebrews chapter 11, it says, out of weakness, we were made strong. How do we become like Paul who says, I rejoice in my weaknesses because in my weakness, he is made strong. You see, in, we've got to come to a realization that our weaknesses are not weaknesses. Our weaknesses are potential opportunities for the strength of God to come through our lives. If you are walking in the flesh, every time you, you, your weakness is exposed, you're going to be crippled in fear and anxiety. But if you're walking in the spirit, every time your weakness is exposed, you get excited because then you get to see God move. God does not work through your strength. He works through his strength and your weaknesses. And we are all weak. And once you acknowledge that and put your faith in that and take up the shield that God is my strong tower I am the, the dumb rock badger hiding in the cliffs of the rock because it's his strength That's, that is it guys if we're going to have any victory in this season as a church as a people you've got to stop walking in the flesh Look, I don't care what you do. If you want to put a mask on, you want to do that. I don't care. That's not my standing. I'm not going to speak on that. What I'm speaking on is you can lie to me. You can lie to all those around you and say you're not walking in fear. But you have to be honest with God. Is there fear in your actions? Is there fear in your life? If it is, we need to weed it out and put our faith and our strength in God. Amen? It's like this. My little girl, she's three years old. And I believe that God sometimes will let us go through things and come to a point of anxiety and to point to exhaustion in our own strength so that we can realize, I can't do it. And my little girl, she's three years old, and, and she has, when we first started putting in her car seat and she started being able to like talk, and she would get so mad that I would try to help her get in the car seat. I mean, mad. Like, it would be a 10-minute screaming thing if I buckled her in myself she would scream for 10 minutes wherever we're going because she's so angry so what do I have to do I have to sit there for 15 minutes letting her figure out that she can't do it she would try to buckle and it's not that she can't because she's not smart enough she can't because she's not strong enough literally those things are others tough you gotta have she's trying and trying and she's trying and she'll get frustrated and she'll start getting angry and she's like daddy and i'm like baby let me try no daddy i got this. and for 10 15 minutes this back and forth eventually i get sick of it so i go sit in the front seat and wait wait in the car and thinking maybe she'll click and i could just pull off and go nope every time got to get out of the car back in when she says okay daddy i can't do it you do it and guys, I, I look at my, my heavenly father, I look at my Jesus, and my Jesus, he's sitting there waiting, David, you need to stop this, you can't do it, I, I got it, God, I'm strong enough, no, you can't, let me do it, and then God's going back and sitting on his throne, he's like, okay, God, do it, you do it now, 10 years later, okay, 
And we've got we've to come to the point where, look, our weaknesses, we've got to acknowledge them. And it's, no, it's not a, a bad thing. It's not, you know, it makes you any less of a person. It's not making you, it's actually making you stronger and more mature and more wise. You're actually more wise to acknowledge and walk in your weaknesses and rest in the strength of God than you are. You are a fool if you try to rest in your strength. You're a fool. He's also going to shoot the darts of discouragement. Now, I just want to hit on this real quick, the darts of discouragement. Now, how do we face the darts of discouragement? We got to take on the promises, put our faith in the promises of God. Did you know that God has given you promises? Did you know that God said that he uh, who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus? Did you know that Jesus in 1 John 1, uh, 5 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Did you know that's a promise from God? Did you know that we need to memorize and meditate on the promises of God because they are yours? And when God, when Satan is throwing darts of doubt to you, dart, darts of discouragement to you, he's throwing darts of fear in you, we meditate on the promises and on the person and on the power of our holy God. Amen? Then, take up the shield of faith. Faith in who? God. Person, his person, his power, his qualities, his characteristics, his promises. And then we take on the helmet of salvation. He says, and take on the helmet of salvation. The Roman soldiers used to wear a helmet, and it covered their what? You guys are good. Uh, Covers their head, okay? Covers their head. It covers their mind. Now, this is, we need to get back to this, okay? We need to think about it because this is, we have gotten off as a church in the last hundred years. We've done this weird uh, detour, but the Bible, throughout scripture, we see that the, the mind needs to be protected, that our faith is largely built around our renewing our mind, placing our mind as the mind thinks, so the person is. Right? As we think, so are we. But what we have done just, just in the past hundred years, I, I, and it, it was like a, we skipped centuries because it, this was a, an old heresy back in the 200, 300 years, uh, 300 AD. And then all of a sudden it kind of got destroyed as heresy, as her, heretical. And then we went back in the 1900s, we brought it back and it was this movement of church hyper emotionalism and hyper experiential. Like, we came to where we, we tried to frenzy each other up, and this is what they used to do back in the time when Paul was writing uh, early, when Paul first wrote some of these, like, first Corinthians, what they would do is they'd get together the, the cults, and not just Christian cults, but other cults, they'd get together, and they'd start, they'd burn certain incense, they would start banging gongs, and they would start hyping each other up, and they'd start getting emotionally frenzied up, and they'd start speaking in kind of gibberish, and just shouting and yelling, and frenzied up, and emotional, hyper-emotional, hyper-emotional, People be falling on the floor, chewing on the rugs, dancing, doing all kinds of stuff. And Paul says, if you're doing this without, it's, it's like a noisy gong. That's why he says a noisy gong. But then what happened was we kind of started bringing this back. Where the faith became a lot about hyper-emotionalism and not the mind. I know when I grew up, a lot of people would say, how do you know what you believe? And the common answer for when I was growing up was, I don't know. I just do. I, I feel it. I have faith. How do you know why you have the hope for what you believe? I don't know. I feel it, though. I believe it's true. 
And the Bible is clear that there's an aspect of the mind that we need to. And now look, our mind, Satan is going to go after our minds. We put on the helmet of salvation. Satan's going after your mind. I don't know about you, but have you ever sat through a church and how easy your mind wanders and how easy thoughts come into your mind? You could be sitting, some of y'all are not even listening to me right now. Some of y'all are thinking about, I'm hungry, this is happening, there's a game on, you know, something's taking, you know, some of you I've been praying, and I've been thinking about God, and then like 10 minutes later, I'm in the, the woods shooting zombies, like in my mind. I'm like, where did this thought, and then there's also like, have you ever been in that moment where like literally perversion, just like wicked thoughts come through your mind, like, God, what was that? Like, what is this wickedness in me, in this mind? Of, why is this even in my, why? And so the Bible says, now we need to protect our minds. We do not need to entertain our minds because here's how it works. The mind, all sin begins in the mind. If you sow a thought, you reap an act. If you sow an act, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And you sow a character, you reap a destiny. But it all starts, some of you are like, well, David, I would never act upon it. It's, I just think about these things. Like that girl that I work with, I would never act upon it, but I think about her. Think about it. I would never act upon it. Yeah, I'm friends with this guy at work. I would never act upon it because I've been doing ministry a long time. I don't even have to be doing ministry, but I'll tell you what I've never heard. I've never heard this. I've never heard as a pastor who officiates weddings, the groom come to me and say, David, I just want to let you know ahead of time, I, I, I love my wife, and I'm excited about getting married, but I'm really, I think I'm going to be one of those guys that cheats on my wife. I just feel like that's where God has for me, and I think that's where my, my life is going. I think that's how it's going to end. You know, or I, I, you know what, David, I, 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 know, I know this is nice, and, and, and to be, I just feel like eventually in my life, I, I think where I need to go, I'm going to be a drug addict. Like, I think that's the, the path for me. That's where I'm going to, I just have a feeling in my spirit that I'm going to be a drug addict or I'm going to be an adulterer or I'm going to be, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to, I grow up and my, my goal is to get married and have kids and then to ignore them and work, be a workaholic. That's the goal. I've never heard any of that. No, what happens is it begins in the mind. Satan begins to speak death in your mind. You entertain it in your mind, and then you act upon it. And then I have talked to so many people, and it's this, this pattern. This is how it works. Just two weeks ago, this happened, exactly this thing. This person who had good theology, who knows what God says, who knows what the Word says, she falls in love with an unbeliever. She starts liking an unbeliever, and in her mind, she starts to cater to it. She's like, well, I know he's an unbeliever, but I, I think I should still, he's still a good guy, and I think we should, you know, he's still, and she starts entertaining in her mind. Eventually, she starts dating this guy, and as an unbeliever, he has no moral guidelines. He's just of the world, and that's because he's blind to the world, uh, by and by world. And so he's pushing her for sexual relationships. She knows. She knows what the Bible says. She knows what the Word of God says, she, and she believes it all. But as she's being pressed, as it's getting in the mind, she's like, well, maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe it's okay. Maybe God was, and she starts to cater to it. She starts to cater to it. Eventually, she slips up. She's now sleeping with him, and it became a habit. Now she's doing it over, over and over and over again. And now he is, uh, he doesn't live here. And so she is thinking about moving with him and living with him, not married. I don't want to get married. And, and she gets to this point where now she is now actually going to move in with this guy, sleeping with this guy, an unbeliever. And I'm like, how do you go from correct theology, correct doctrine to that. Here's how it works. Satan is going to throw thoughts into your mind that tempt your flesh. And if you do not quench them 
and protect your mind and you entertain them, all of a sudden you start living on these acts. But you as a believer, you cannot live off these acts because your conscience and your spirit will convict you. So what do you have to do? You have to slowly, slowly start to change God's theology. You start changing how God would feel about it. Now you ask this person, how could you do this? And she says, I think God's okay with this. I think God is okay with it. I think God would never tell me that I can't love and do what I want in love. Starts with entertaining in your mind. That's why Paul says in Philippians, he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, report, if there is any virtue of it, there, there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So what's he say? Put on the helmet of salvation. Now, what's he talking about? Once again, I don't believe he's talking about your salvation in the past because he's talking to believers. The unbelievers are blinded. They, they're, they're blind. Their minds are blinded by the, by the enemy. So he's talking about salvation. I believe that we have, actually, we have a further understanding of what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians. Let's read 1 Thessalonians. It says this, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith, this is in Thessalonians, and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Okay, so now Paul is saying, put on the hope of salvation. Now, what's the hope of salvation? What's he talking about? When you were saved, that was past, right? You are signed, sealed, delivered. You're sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, okay? Now, did you know that there is three kinds of salvation? There is past salvation, there is present salvation, and there is future salvation. Now, these words are used differently in theology. Past salvation is called what? Justification. You were justified. Present salvation is called what? Sanctification. You are being sanctified. Future salvation is called what? Glorification. You, are being, you will be glorified. Every one of us has been justified. Every single one of us is being sanctified. Every single one of us will be glorified. Those in Christ, you are saved, you're justified, you're being sanctified, you will be glorified. Do you know what kind of salvation Paul's talking about, this hope of salvation falls under? The glorification. It's your future salvation. Put on the helmet of your future glorification. Did you know the early church, their whole mindset, they meditate a day and night on the return of Christ and where their home will be and where their home is, that Paul was constantly longing to be with Christ, that he was constantly waiting for the return of Christ, that they were constantly meditating. I, Abraham, I, my eyes are on the kingdom that's not built. The architect is not built with human hands, but on the architect the, and creator is God, right? Moses, the same thing. He's meditating on the kingdom of God. He's meditating on the, 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 the city of God. He's meditating on his future, his eternal dwelling place and so many christians there's a saying that say well don't be so heavenly minded that you're no of no earthly good that is stupid it's garbage you cannot be so heavenly minded that you're not of earthly good the more heavenly minded you are the more earthly good you are the less heavenly minded you are the less earthly good you are and heavenly good you are 
Our problem is not that we're focused on heaven too much. Our problem is that we're not focused on heaven enough. Our problem is that we're focused on earth. Because when you start to focus on heaven, when you place the... Because the last thing that Satan wants you to do is to be motivated and to be driven and to be protected, that your mind is protected by the thought and the truth that one day you will stand in the presence of God Almighty as his son and daughter. Because when you are thinking that way, then all of a sudden you're not getting worried that somebody took your parking spot at Walmart, right? You're not getting worried that you might get sick. You're not, you're not worried that you might lose your job. You're not worried that you don't have the nice new thing. You're not motivated by pleasures of this world. You're not motivated by the, the pride of life. You're not worried about how many Facebook or Instagram likes you have. You're not worried about any of that and that pride. No, when you're motivated by the kingdom of God, all of a sudden you become a powerful weapon because all you do, you understand that everything you do, that you're living for God is not in vain. All of a sudden your money becomes a weapon and it's not in vain that you spend more money on the kingdom than you do on yourself. All of a sudden, your time is a weapon, and you spend more time on the kingdom than you do on yourself. You spend more energy on the kingdom than you do on yourself. Well, David, but you, but you got to have rest, and you got to have your own pleasures, and you got to have this. I rest in Jesus, right? That's what I see in Scripture. But, but David, I'm too old. Where do we see the, the idea of retirement in the Bible? You don't get to retire, bro. You worked all your life, and you're busting and busting and busting, and guess what? You ain't done. You get to retire when we bury you six feet in the ground, and then you get to raise first. That's the good thing. You get to raise first because you're six feet lower. Take you a long time to get, up, to get to us, but you don't get to retire. You work and you work and you work and you work because your home is not here. It's that, it's that old parable. It's actually a story I once heard, but it was, say we're all trying to get to California. I don't know why anybody would want to get to California, but let's just say we're all going to fly to California. And there are two planes you could take. The first plane is you get to ride first class. You get your spot all to yourself, first class. You get two meals because it's only a six-hour drive. You can get three if you want. All the drinks you want, all the foods you want. You get to have this big flat screen movie. The AC is pumping. You just, it's so comfortable. It's so nice. You know, you have your own stewardess. Like she, she is yours. Like so she gets, she's not going to be distracted by anybody else. She's serving you. You know, you have all this leg room. Nobody's talking to you. Nobody's bothering you. It's this, it's noise cancellation. I mean, you're just, it's perfect. The only problem is, is the landing gear is broken. So when you get to California, you will die. Or you get to ride in the second plane. It's coach. You're sitting in between two huge jutes. I'm a bathe in a week. The AC blower doesn't even work, so you can't blow their stench away. You know, that little, little knob that moves. There's no food. You get, you get peanuts. The drinks is a little shooter glass of water. Right? And every time the steward is rolling the cart, she drills the big guy next to you who drills you, and you get sweat all over your face. No leg room. This has happened to me. I'm just saying. Uh, no leg room. Nothing. No, not even a TV to entertain you. But the landing gear works. You're going to make it there safe. Which plane do you take? Problem is, is a lot of us are taking plane A. 
A lot of Christians today, maybe not us in this room, but a lot of Christians are taking plan A. I would rather live my life. I know that the life of, uh, in the flesh, I would rather have Christ as Savior, Satan as Lord. I would love to live in my flesh, even though I know it's going to end in destruction. Even though I know that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to live as a coward. I'm going to live in the flesh. I'm going to live in my lust. I'm going to live in my, in my, my pride. I'm going to live in my anger, my greed. I'm going to live in it. I'm going to dwell in it. I'm going to live in my comfort. I'm going to live for my comfort for this world. And the end of the plane ride, we know it's going to lead to destruction, but yet we still choose it. The Bible says, take on the hope, the helmet of hope. Place your mind on eternal things. Everything you spend your money, think about how is this, how is this advancing the kingdom? Every time you spend your time, you wake up, how am I advancing the kingdom? Live for the kingdom. Put the helmet off. And this is the last thing, guys. We're going to try to get through this. This is my favorite. I'll tell you, out of everything, this is my favorite weapon. And I got so excited when I was reading this. Um, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, once again, there's two weapons, two swords. You have the big sword, you know, right? Like the big, like uh, when you wield the huge. Um, and then you have a small little sword and it's more like a dagger. It's more like a buoy knife. It's like the close combat. Like if you're wrestling with somebody and you're, you can't like swill this big sword. You have this little buoy knife. You pull out, stab them right in the gut. Like, right. That's the idea is this, it's you, you, you're very direct with it. You are very, uh, uh, controlled with it. You know exactly where it's going, where the big weapon, you're like swinging it and you're just kind of going for the mass of the body with the, the little dagger. You have more control and better aim with it. And that's actually the word that the Bible is talking about. We would love for, oh, the big sword. That's the kind of sword I want to fight with. No, some of us, but what, what Paul's saying is take the dagger, take this little buoy knife. That's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Okay, so the word of God. So the Christians, we need to stand in order for we us to stand against the enemy, the darts of the enemy, the wiles of the devil. We need to be in right relationship with the Bible. And so the first thing we need to do when it comes to relationship with the Bible, the first thing that we have to believe is you have to believe that the Bible is the word of God. If you're here this morning, I'm just going to say this as, as clear as I can. If you believe that the Bible is just a good book, the Bible is just, you know, it, it's good morals, it's good guidelines, but the Bible is not the word of God. If that is your faith, you fight the spiritual warfare unarmed. You do not have a weapon. You do not have a sword. The Bible is the word of God. And yet this is, and Satan is going to go after this. He's going to try to get you to doubt it. Is it really the word of God? And he's got the whole world kind of coming against this. Is this really, I mean, like after all that's, you know, because I've heard it all, I've heard it all, you know, but back in 300 AD, Constantine came in and he took, you know, the, the, the gospel of Judas and the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary, and he didn't like it. So they got rid of it because they didn't agree with the doctrines that the church liked. And, and in the book of Enoch, should have been in there and the apocrypha should have been all of these different things and it was just all kind of molded and it was really never the word of God and all I've heard every one of the theories and I guess I, I would love to spin a, a sermon to just bash all of those those I had a guy come in here a couple weeks ago try to convince me the trinity was not real through the bible and one of his arguments was well back in 300 AD Constantine came on like for an hour after let me tell you something you try to talk to me after church for an hour you're going to start seeing the flesh, okay? <laughs> just, and he started seeing some little flesh. You'd be proud. Your pastor held it together. 
But it was that idea, the Bible is not real. Or some parts of the Bible is real. This is a big one. This is a big one with, with, with progressive Christianity. This is going to come as a shock to you, but there is absolutely no such thing as progressive Christianity. Do you know that? But this is what we're calling ourselves, the new church, the progressive Christians. First of all, we're not progressing. We're regressing. This is All the stuff we're seeing today was going on in Rome when Paul wrote the letters. You know, Christendom came in and it kind of cleaned it up. But once you allow man to go back to where our natural resting state will go back to sin, go back to rebellion. We're not progressing. We are regressing. So there's no progression. And the whole theory around progressive Christianity is we walked away from the, the, the historical teachings of the Bible and we have changed the historical teachings of the Bible. We have walked away from following Jesus Christ. What do you call a follower of Jesus Christ who doesn't follow Jesus Christ? Not following Jesus Christ. You are not a follower. You're not a Christian. You are, you call yourself whatever you want to be. You could be a guru. You could be, you know, happy, you know, whatever. You can be a, a prophet of some kind. You call yourself whatever, but you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. So there's no such thing as a progressive Christian. Amen? But you say, well, I, I pick and choose which verses are of the God. Well, how do you pick and choose? Which ones are, the, are of God? Tell me. Who decides? Do you get to pick or do I get to pick or do we both get to pick? Now, if we both get to pick, that's fun because then you pick and then I'll pick. But what if my verses contradict your verses? Who's right? We all have our own verses. Okay, that's fun. That's confusing. Um, so we all have our own verses that God created, that God spoke, but those verses are not the same verses as my verses. So God didn't say this word, but he said this word. You see how it gets confusing, and you see here, here's what happens. You get to pick and choose which ones are the word of God. You're the one who decides, and what do you decide based off of? Your own views, your own wants, your own desires. Ultimately, who is God at that point? You are. You have molded God into your image. So we need to know that the word of God is the word of God, but secondly, we need to know the word of God. So a lot of us, we may know it's the word of God, but we know it's the Word of God, but how many of us actually study the Word of God? Which doesn't make any sense because if you know it's God's Word, God's breathing, God's speaking, why would you not say, I want to know this? But then thirdly, we also need to be doers of the Word of God. Okay? You with me? So know it is the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Be doers of the Word of God. James says... But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. He calls it looking like you're looking in a mirror. It's like the word of God is a mirror. When you look in the word of God and you say, oh, well, the Bible, it says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And you're like, oh, man, I don't do that. Oh, submit to your husbands as, as, as the church submits to Christ. I don't do that. It's like looking in the mirror and you see a bunch of pimples and zits and your hair is all messed up and everything's wrong. And you say, you walk away from it and say, okay, let's go through, let's go through life. And the Bible says, if you're not doing what you see through the mirror, if you're not fixing it and changing it, you are deceiving yourself because you're not actually doing what the Word of God says. So we are to know it's the Word of God. We're to know it as the Word and to know the Word of God. We're to do the Word of God. But this is where it gets fun. We need to use the Word of God against Satan and his attacks. We need to wield the Word of God against the enemy. We need to remember, though, the sword is the Spirit of God the word of God. You cannot separate the spirit from the word. 
It's not just the word. It's not just thought. a lot of churches say we, we want to be one of those spirit-driven churches. We don't do exegetical. We don't study the word that much. We use the word, yes, but we don't, we're more, we want emotionally, the spirit-driven, spiritual-led. It's all about the spirit, and the word takes a back seat. But then other ones, other churches, like, I want Father, Son, Holy Bible. I don't want the spirit. Spirit interrupts what we're trying to do. He makes it weird. We don't like weird. We just want Holy Bible, King James only, right? That's it. We can't do either one of those. We have to have the word of God and the spirit of God. But he says, you take this word of God, right? And the word word. Now, here in the Greek, this is where I want to really focus in. Sorry, guys, I'm kind of everywhere on this one. The word word in the Greek has two words in the Greek. So the word word has two words in the Greek. Does that make sense? Okay, so we have one English word, word. There are two words in the Greek for word. The first word is logos. You know, so logos is used in the Bible. Logos is used to express hidden meanings or hidden thought. The Bible in John says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, right? Who is the logos? Jesus, okay? So logos, when you use that word, word is to express hidden thought. It's like in the Old Testament, all the words and the, 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 the doctrines of the Old Testament was God revealing who he is through logos, through words, through spoken. When you have a thought, I don't know what you're thinking until you speak what you're thinking. That's the logos. You're revealing something. That's why Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If you see me, you see in the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the living, breathing expression of who God is. He is the logos, the expression of God, the invisible God. Jesus became visible. Does that make sense? But that's not the word Paul uses here. Paul uses the word rhema. And rhema is not the expression of a, of a hidden thought. Rhema is a word that is applied to a specific situation. So when Paul says, pick up the rhema, pick up the sword, which is the rhema, what he's saying is, when, have you ever been in church and you've had like a rough day or something's going on in your life and the pastor preaches a message that hits you directly? It speaks to your life? That's a rhema. It's, it, it, God is addressing a specific situation through his word. Have you ever had a situation you just open the Bible and that he speaks directly to you by just reading that word of God? That's the rhema. Have you ever been talking to somebody and, and, and they are struggling with something and going on in life and you quote a Bible verse, it just comes to your, your mind. God gives you that word to speak into their life. You just spoke a rhema. A word for a specific need. That's why there's that dagger, because the dagger is specific. It's, there's the wound. I'm, I know where the dagger's going. Here's the issue. I'm going to speak the dagger. I'm going to use the sword to push and puncture where I want it to go. It's the rhema. It's a word for a specific need and a purpose. So when Satan attacks, we have a rhema against his attack. This is fun. Jesus, we see Jesus do this. When Jesus is in the desert, he's fasting for 40 days. Satan comes after him after 40 days. Now, we often know, oh, Jesus was God, so fasting for 40 days was not a big deal. He was human. So him fasting for 40 days is like you fasting for 40 days, okay? He fasted for 40 days, and Satan comes after him, and Satan comes to bring temptation in his life, and he says, take this stone and turn it into bread satisfy yourself. The lust of the 
flesh, satisfy, gratify. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't try to argue with Satan. No, God, God doesn't want me to do that. Or he doesn't try to resist. He doesn't sit there and say, it's tempting, Satan. You're, you're got something here. He doesn't try to fight him. He just says, ha, ha, ha. It is written. I'm going to attack you. I'm going to stab you with a rhema. It is written, man shall not live off of bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Take that, Satan. Jesus doesn't try to argue with, with, with Satan. He doesn't try to, to debate him. He doesn't try to resist him. He just stabs him with a word, a specific word for the specific temptation. Satan said, okay, okay, that's fine. Let's take you up to the mountain. Take you up to the mountain, and I'm going to say, I'm going to give you all the riches, all the kingdoms of the world. You can be king. Now, Satan could give that authority because God gave him the authority over all the earth. He's the prince of the power of this age. Satan can give you the authority. Satan can give you the riches of this world. Satan can give you the blessings of this world. That's why I always find it interesting when you see a false prophet blessed by the physical wealth. People are like, well, God must be blessing him. Are you sure? Because Satan's the one who promises Jesus, I'll give you all the riches. I'll give you all the wealth. And so Satan promises Jesus this, I'll give you every riches, all the treasures, all all the kingdoms. You don't have to go through the cross to get it. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't sit there. He's not tempted by it. He's not pondering on it. He doesn't cater. He doesn't let it dwell in his mind. He gives Satan a rhema. He says, no, 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 no. Thou shalt worship God and God alone, and he alone shall you serve. Right? And this is where Satan gets tricky. Satan goes to the word of God. He says, ha, ha, okay. It is written, though. Jesus, now Satan's going to the word. Now, we, a lot of times we say, well, Satan would never use scripture. Satan's a better theologian than any of us. Satan knows the Bible more than any of us. And he will use the word of God, and he will twist it. So anytime you say, well, that guy, but he preaches from the word of God. Does he really, or does he use the word of God to get his points across? Does he use his word as a pretext to get whatever he's trying to say to you? Is it really him preaching from the word? But anyway, so he is using the word. He says, but God did say, right, that the angels will charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your feet against the stone. Well, that's Bible. That's scripture. And what does Jesus say? Thou shalt not test and tempt the Lord thy God. See, Satan uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to go after Jesus. And with every temptation, Jesus did not stand and try to resist. He didn't try to talk Satan out of it. He didn't try to talk himself into it. He just used the rhema to attack the weapons of Satan. Guys, we need to learn this. Because a lot of times we think that when you're at work and you're being tempted by your coworker, you think, I'm just going to sit in that. I'm not going to do anything by it. This this thought comes in your mind. What are you supposed to do? You just, well, just get behind me, Satan. That's wicked. That's mean. Oh, I would never do that. Why would I think that? Or maybe I should just think about it and I'm not going to. No, we need to have a rhema ready. We don't cater to it. See, I'm not saying you got to memorize the entire scriptures, but some of y'all have been struggling with the same temptation for 20 years and you do not have a rhema against Satan. Every time you get tempted to look at the computer, you don't have a Bible verse to combat him to stab him. 
Every time you get tempted by your coworker, you don't have that. But every time you get tempted to lust or to have the pride of, of you know, to, to, to walk around with your shirt off and, hey, look at me. <laughs> every time you want to be proud or be, be boastful or be arrogant, every time you want to get angry, you don't have it. Some of y'all are still walking in fits of rage because you have never learned the rhema to attack Satan. We're going on our, most of us, many of us, myself included in the past, I've, I've lived with this, but I've never learned this truth. Nobody ever told me to start stabbing Satan with the word of truth as a rhema. I've never heard this. So I've been walking around as the drummer for the army, unarmed. I'm fully clothed in my, my military, I got my helmet on, I'm just bouncing around. I always feel bad for that fool. He's going to die first. He has no weapon. What's he going to do, throw a drumstick at me? Like He can't do, I was never told how to stab Satan. How to fight this battle. I was told to just resist, resist, resist. Man, we got to start fighting back with a rhema. So we, we all know ourselves. We know how Satan gets us. We know Satan's going to attack you. We know it's somewhere in doubt. The, you, doubt is where Satan goes after you. Where fear is where Satan goes after you. Where lust is where Satan goes after you. Where, where temptation, where pride is where Satan goes after you. We know where Satan, we all know ourselves and our weaknesses. And so let's, let us learn Ramas, the word of God, to fight back the attacks of the enemy. Pick up the sword. Pick up the sword. So we need to have the whole body, the armor of faith. We need to have the breastplate. We need to have the belt. We need to have the shoes. We need to have the, the helmet, the shield, and we need to have the sword. 